Recently, we had our annual women's conference with the theme of Choose to Challenge, where we were taking a look at social issues that we want to challenge and creating the action steps for creating change in our communities and workplaces. Nerdy Girl Success was fortunate to have the ever-amazing expert on diversity and inclusion, Janet Stovall. In this podcast episode, we're sharing her presentation and fireside chat with you so we can further the conversation. In 1964, three things were born, the Mustang, bubble wrap, and the business case for diversity. All three still exist today, but one is not working. What if everything we know about race and diversity is flat out wrong? It's time to move the big rocks, make a new case. It's time to get serious about change and inclusion, pure and simple. Long before anyone used the term highly selective for colleges like Davidson, I knew it was. And it was clear from the first few minutes on campus that many of the students were highly privileged. It was also clear to me that I was decidedly not. But I figured a shared commitment to the place and the mission would level the playing field, put us on common ground, create a landscape where race and gender didn't really matter. But on a spring day in 1992, I walked into some truth. I walked right into the Civil War. Now, that's not how my classmates saw it. They were not, as they explained to me, glorifying slavery. They were celebrating a time when chivalry was alive and when women sat on verandas sipping mint juleps. We all know who built those porches, grew that mint, and then made and served those juleps. So I had to challenge that narrative. And once I started, I never stopped. In fact, challenging that narrative and everything it perpetuates has made me into what I am today. A diversity pragmatist. Someone who looks for objective ways to deal with some highly subjective issues. For me, the focus is race. And right now, I stay pretty busy because right now, Everybody is talking about race, not diversity, but race. We all know why. And what we know should make us challenge everything we thought we knew about diversity, equity, and inclusion. In fact, choosing to challenge was what women all over the world raised our hands for in 2021. Choosing to challenge is what all of us are here to talk about today. What does it mean to challenge? How do you know where to start? What can one person, one company actually do? The answer, I believe, is a whole hell of a lot. Challenging for change is a three-step process. Choose, commit, commence. Challenge is a choice. We have to speak up, lean in, and take a stand. You have to pick a side. But you ask, which side? What challenge do you choose? Great questions, of course. But let me suggest that instead of asking which or what, start with why. Simon Sinek, author, organizational consultant, and TED speaker, describes his thinking process as the golden circle. He says most organizations can tell you what and how, but only a few know why. I believe that's also true for challenges. 
Successful challenges start with why. So what is your why? Your why drives you to want change and to be willing to lead it. Your why is shaped with the words, I believe. So what do you believe about injustice, inequity, inclusion? Find your why, because ultimately your why becomes your what. And that brings us to the second step in challenging for change. Commitment. Everyone here has already committed to one challenge, changing the landscape of leadership. That's Nerdy Girl Success's big, hairy, audacious goal. That's your why. But how do you make your why your what? Whether you're committing to challenge as a person or as an organization, start with what you know. Allow me to share an example. Before I joined the Neuroleadership Institute, I was a speechwriter for the CEO at UPS. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd died after a Minneapolis police officer kneeled on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, sparking global protests against racism and police brutality. Exactly one week later, on June 1st, 2020, Carol Tomei officially assumed the role of CEO of UPS. In her first statement to UPSers as CEO, she vowed to turn her anger about racism and inequity into action. Shortly thereafter, on a Saturday morning, a cross-functional team of UPS leaders came together to see if there was a way to make Carol's aspirational statement actionable. And the UPS Equity, Justice, and Action Task Force was born. Fighting racism and inequity was what Carol chose to challenge. Building a framework for action was how we committed to that challenge. We started with why. Because we believe inclusion and diversity are essential to innovation and success, which led us to what? Combat racism by promoting justice and equity where systemic racism persists, and UPS is best positioned to move the needle. That last part was the most important. When you're a global company with more than 500,000 employees, there's a lot you can do. And when you choose to challenge things as big as racism and inequity, there's a lot you need to do. But committing to challenge is about deciding what you will do. And since no single company can do everything, we focused on what we already knew how to do, our core competencies. As a communicator on the team, I started looking for ways to make sense of things. I knew racism is systemic, so that's where we have to fight it. I knew UPS already had a presence in the judicial, economic, cultural, healthcare, and education systems. I knew who our diversity and inclusion stakeholders were, employees, customers, suppliers, the community. That's where we could do the most good, where we could best commit to challenge. Everyone started throwing out ideas, so I started drawing pictures, connecting dots, because that's my core competency. That's how we started. This is where we landed. This framework is one of the things that I'm proudest to have created because with a paper towel and a Sharpie, 
I'm helping to shape one of the world's biggest companies, commitment to challenge, one of the world's biggest problems. And that's what the third step in challenging for change is all about. You've found your why. You've engaged your core. It's time to commence. When you choose and commit to challenge and equity, commence on every level, personally and professionally, interpersonally, organizationally, structurally. Let me explain what I mean by that. The isms of inequity, racism, sexism, ableism, sizeism, etc., operate on three levels. Interpersonal inequity happens in interactions between individuals. It's prejudice, having negative attitudes towards a different race or culture. It's bias, the brain-based tendency to favor those who are similar, surrounding, or safe. It's what we usually think about when we talk about workplace racism and sexism. But it's really not the biggest problem. Organizational inequity happens when institutions do things like they've always done. It's status quo, not rocking the boat, letting things evolve, organic change. In theory, that works. In reality, some people have privilege. The workplace wasn't always equitable. It won't get that way by wishing and waiting. That's organizational inequity. Structural inequity is the bigger system within which this all plays out. Structural inequity is cumulative, pervasive, and durable. It's often mislabeled, misunderstood, and therefore denied. But once you know where inequity exists, you can commence the challenge to fight it. Start with yourself. Look inside and check your unconscious bias. If you have a brain, you have bias. It's biological. It's how humans reduce the number of decisions we have to make, how we find our tribes, how we survive. Bias is biology, but unmitigated bias can lead to bigotry. I work for a company that develops solutions to mitigate bias. So yes, I know it's possible. And once you start working on your bias, you can be an ally. That starts with having what I like to call 5A conversations. Ask the people who live the experience. Absorb what they have to say. Listen. Accept that what they say is true. I didn't say acknowledge. I said accept. Adjust your own beliefs. Accepting that beliefs are not truths. And then articulate. Tell the truth. Take a stand. Be an ally. Next, commence the challenge on an organizational level. No matter where you sit on the org chart, you can be an ally in the workplace. But if you're in a decision-making position, you can fight inequity by advancing what I like to call 3RDEI. 3RDEI comprises three things. Identifying real problems, assigning real measures, instituting real consequences, and the operative word is real. Real problems, those are the things that diversity can really solve uniquely. In any good business decision, the first question before deploying any resource is, what are we solving for? Diversity is an asset. 
which makes equity a strategic advantage. And if you identify the problems diversity solves in your company, then it's a lot easier to make equity a strategic imperative. In inclusive companies, real problems are the ones that leverage diversity to address real issues. Real problems are measured with real numbers. Forget about aspirational goals. Do you have aspirational quality goals, aspirational sales goals? No. You have metrics that make sense, metrics that mean something, metrics that align with your strategic priorities. What if we assign metrics like that to equity? What if we set inclusion goals, establish benchmarks, move beyond the short-term linear assessments to really understand the value that equity and inclusion bring? One thing we know for sure, what gets measured is what gets done. And we also know that what is incentivized is prioritized. As important as measuring is, measures don't matter if consequences don't count. In business and in life, people do what they are incentivized to do, period. Start attaching some carrots or sticks to inclusion and equity metrics and just watch what happens. Equity is no different than any other business imperative. So what if we treated it like one? Business, more than any other entity, is situated to make structural change. Business has the resources, the talent, the know-how, and the need. But we must commence the challenge to change things. One person, one company, one industry at a time, but all working together. And it's not just inside the walls of our homes and offices, but in the streets, through activism. Because that's how you dismantle structures. Inside out, outside in, top down, bottom up. It's about being the change you want to see on every level. And I believe you can do it. Let me close by offering my life as a case study. I chose to challenge and found my why. I believe business can dismantle racism and disrupt inequity. I committed to challenge by doing what I do, communicating. And I commenced the challenge interpersonally by being the voice of those who might not have one, organizationally by connecting dots and building frameworks for action, and structurally by whispering in the ears and shaping the voices of leaders, and then sharing what I've learned on every soapbox or stage my feet could find, including this one. And there is no place I'd rather be. Because I believe we are the ones who can do this work. So I charge you, choose to challenge, find your why. Commit to challenge, engage your core. Commence to challenge, do the work. I believe we are the ones that our companies and the world have been waiting for. And I believe today is as good a day as any to start. Shall we? Thank you. Had TED Talk challenging businesses to get serious about inclusion has nearly 2 million views. Janet holds a bachelor's in English from Davidson College, a master's in integrated marketing communications from Georgetown University, and postgraduate certificates in diversity and inclusion from Cornell University 
and Yale University. So join me in welcoming Janet. Welcome, Janet. It's so good to see you today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Yes, we're so grateful. We're so happy to have you here. So um, I'm going to jump right straight into the questions so um, we could get through as many as, as we can. Okay. Um, the first question is, sometimes I think that it's in terms such as minority group in which women are boxed into that takes, takes power from us and creates the inequity in gender we see today because we're not given the opportunity to begin on an equal playing ground in a sense. In your own words, what will you say is a huge determinant for gender inequity in the workplace today? And how do we take back our power? Well, gender inequity exists for the same reason that racial inequity exists, because those who are in power benefit from that. So the reality is, is that as long as you, the power structure exists, there's always going to be one group that has a vested interest in keeping things the way they are. The issue is whether or not we are willing to let that continue. There's a, um, a, a fable out there that talks about the elephant and how you took an elephant as a baby and you tied it to a stake and it's the elephant and, and he sort of couldn't get away. And the elephant grew, but the stake didn't. However, because the elephant grew up being tethered, it never thought that it could escape. And that's kind of what we have to look at when we look at word terms like um, uh, we look at the inequity that exists in the in the workplace. The term minority that is used for women or people of color is is itself a problem because I mean let's think about it. it technically, technically, women are a minority in the world. We're forty nine point five percent, so a little bit of a minority. But the reality is, if you look at the other term that minority is used for people of color, that's not even true anymore. And it's getting to be less and less true. So that tells you what that word can do. The first thing we've got to do, I think, as women and as, and, and as people of color, anybody who that term applies to is we have to reclaim that term. We have to look at it and say the only time that term applies to us is if it is numerical. If it has anything to do with capabilities or, um, or, or uh, abilities, it doesn't count. I think it was Prince, the singer, who said, there's nothing about us that's minor. And, um, and in fact, Forbes magazine won't even use the term anymore because they are aware of the fact that it, it, is, it is a reductive term. We cannot allow ourselves to be seen as that. And I think in general, we as individuals, we do. But we as a group, I think, have bought into that concept as a minority. Thing. We're not. We, we, are, we are half of the population in the world. And it's okay for us to say to the rest of the world, there's no logic that says we shouldn't be half of everything else. We should be half of the CEOs. We should be half of the workforce. We should be all those things. We have got to take our own power back by not allowing anybody to take that power away from us and pushing back against those who benefit from us being minorities. That was really good, um, especially the the part about like, you know, only allowing that term apply when it comes to numbers and not like reducing our capabilities, you know, our ability to get the job done, you know, in a sense. So that was really good. Yeah, um, we're, we're the other half. We are not the minority. We're the other half. Mm -hmm. I would better half, but you know, okay, I got bias. <laughs> 
but yeah, so no, we are we are not the minority. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay. Um, the next question I have is when it comes to changing the landscape of leadership and seeing more representation or equity of women in leadership positions, unfortunately, um, I've heard a couple of times now that women aren't always each other's greatest supporters. We talked about this a little bit, um, Jenna, but what can or how can women in leadership positions intentionally um, do to, you know, change this narrative? What more can they do? One of the most successful strategies for keeping any group of people down is by turning them against each other. Um, they did it in slavery by taking poor white people and telling them that you may be poor, you may be exploited, but you know what? You're better than a black person. Look at how incredibly successful that's been. The same thing has happened with women. And, um, and, and whether it was a conscious thing to do, it, it, I don't care whether it's conscious or not. There are, there's, there's diversity within the diversity there's disparity within the disparity. And something as simple as the fact that the pay gaps, the pay gaps between men and women, okay, you know, we talk about that we don't disaggregate that data. When we talk about the fact that, okay, there's a pay gap between men and women, we need to dig a little deeper because if you look within women, the pay gap between men and women, uh, between white men and white women, is different. It's going to take white women 50 years to catch up at the rate that we're going with what white men earn in the workplace. But it's going to take black and Latino women 250 to 300 years to do it. That's not okay. So we as women have to recognize that we're not monolithic and that we got some stuff we need to fix in our own space. And we need to look at that. And if we're going to get leadership positions, we have to recognize that when we get a leadership position, it is our job to make sure that we bring others along and that we don't buy into the narrative that we will get. I mean, uh, this is, well, you're just promoting that person because they're a woman or you're just supporting that person because it's a woman of color. Well, yeah, I am because at the end of the day, and we got to be okay with that because that's exactly what we do. I mean, it's, it's sort of like the fact that there is exponential possibility that if one woman promotes one other woman, and then that woman promotes another other woman. Eventually, we get to that being just the the, the better half of the situation and not just the minority. It's up to us to change those numbers when we get in place and not be at all apologetic about it. And then, as women, to check our own biases and say, "Am am I doing exactly what has been done with me? Am I promoting people who look just like me? And they may be women, but am I looking beyond? Am I saying that this needs to be a bigger group? Because what we have got to do is we have got to bridge that gap so that we truly can operate like fully 50% of the population and not stratify within ourselves because our our power is in our union. And so many times we as women have told other women, let me get mine and then you'll get yours. And then we kind of forget that promise. It happened in the, um, the women's suffrage, suffrage movement. Mm-hmm. It happened in the affirmative action movement. Because the reality is white women have benefited from affirmative action significantly more than women of color have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it happened in the equal rights movement. We always told women of color, 
wait. Well, we have to stop that. And we have to, if we truly are going to talk about the concept of intersectionality, which a lot of women of color kind of look sideways at, because that term has been co-opted to mean wait. The term has been co-opted to tell women of color, take your gender and put it before your race. When women of color know that we can't do that. That's not a choice. We can't. When I walk in the room, people don't look at me and go, oh, look, there's a woman who's black. That's not what they see. They go, there's a black woman. So I don't have the choice to choose between my intersections, which one I value. So we as women, when we get the opportunity, we have to truly, truly, truly do what we say we do, which is to be women first. And if being women first says, I need to increase and expand my influence, which means I need to pull more people in, sometimes being a woman first means not not choosing the person who looks just like us. And that's on both sides. But not choosing the person, but choosing the woman who can bring more along so that we can build a coalition that can truly then go up against those who would seek to keep us in in the back seat and at a minority level. So we have to we have to get it we have to look at our own we got we got to fix our own stuff with as women. And if we truly say we want to stand up as women, we have to do that. And we have to get over our own biases so that we can bring everybody else along. Completely agree. And you alluded to checking our own biases first before we can effect change. So I agree with that. And I think um, even Christina and I had this discussion, um, and you as well, I think, just around how, like, we're at the point where we're seeing more women, you know, um, being recognized um, for being in leadership or being elevated to those leadership positions. And it's like, we want to get to the point where, like, it's not a thing anymore. It's just be like, oh, now we have this one, you know, woman in this position who is the CEO of this company now, um, the first ever woman to do this thing. Like, we want to, you know, get past that and for it to become a norm, like an equal level playing ground where there's more than one person at the table. And I just think, like, you know, that's the, the continuous work in progress for us just as a, as a group. And we got to be, we got to be fully aware of the fact, even numbers there, that's mm -hmm. this is not something that once we get there, it's solved. We're going to have to undo centuries mm -hmm. of thought processes mm -hmm. because any type of, um, whether it's racism or sexism, those things aren't interpersonal, they're systemic. So we get the numbers are necessary to begin to disrupt the system that exist but so we get the numbers in place we still have work to do and that's why i said we have got to recognize that we can't no one group can do it on their own white women cannot do it by themselves you don't have the numbers so i mean if, if, if nothing else drives us as women to think about dealing with our own biases and really embracing what our intersectionality is is it's a simple fact that we don't have you, no one group of us has the ability to disrupt the systems. We can blow some stuff up in a single company. We can maybe turn some things upside down in a particular department. But if we really want to disrupt the systems, we need the power of 50% of the population. And you cannot walk away from a third of the people 
because you know, people of color make up a third of the, the third of the population. You can't ignore a third and think you're going to get fifty percent. So we have to bring ourselves along. We have to see ourselves as a unit, and then we can blow the system up. Like I said, inside out, outside in, upside down. That's how we have to do it. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's definitely powering like the numbers and come together. And like you just pointed out, some of the right approaches to being change activists. Um, so, what would you say are some of the wrong ways people can go about effecting change? Like, what would be the wrong way to do this? Well, I think the the, the complicated way is to talk about the need for change as the right thing to do. We have got to get the desire for change or the demand for change out of the realm of um, subjectivity. Because let's face it, there are people who thought and still think that the right thing to do is to keep women in the kitchen. There are people who still think that that slavery was the right thing to do. So we don't want to depend on people's opinion of what's right to do. We have to learn to talk about change and activism in in a language that those who resist the change understand. And when we talk about it in the business sphere, now if we're at church, we can talk about it one way. If we're in the community, we talk about it a different way. If we're in the business sphere, we have to talk about gender equity and diversity as a business issue. And I will say the same thing. If you just look at the numbers, no company can afford to ignore 50% of the population and expect to be in business. So if you don't have 50% of your population represented within the organization, making it engaged in the kinds at, at, at the level and in the type of um, problem solving that actually affects what you produce, your, your innovation, your bottom line. So that means women, women in positions of power to make a difference. Then, um, sorry about that. Oh. Sorry about that. I thought my phone was off. Um, but anyway, um, if you don't have women of power in, in positions to actually do something, then nothing changes. So we have to, and when we, so when we talk about why we need to be in the places that we need to be, we have to talk about it as being there because we belong there for the sake of our companies. So the right way to talk about activism is to talk about it in terms for the talk about it in the terms that everybody agrees on. The right way to talk about activism, once again, is to talk about it as a unit, to talk about it as a group. The, the, the wrong way to go about this is to go about it for individual gain. That's the wrong way. We have to think about this as a collective effort. The right way to talk about it is to talk about it in terms that can be measured. It doesn't do us any good to talk about making change that we cannot measure, that we cannot hold people accountable for. To just say, we want things to be better. We want, we want, we want, we want, we want to see more women. How many women do we want to see? Why do we want to see them there? Who do we want to see there? What do we expect them to do when they get there? So I believe that the activism needs we activism should be about passion, absolutely, because that's where you get the power to do it. But the actual conversations need to be about solvable problems, solutions we can measure, and realistic, tangible things that we can achieve. 
To me, that's what activism has to be about. And, it, and, I, and I say in the business environment, but it needs to be the same thing in the community as well. I mean, just saying that we want to make things better. What does better look like? And what does better look like for this community? And when we're in the community, we have to, activism is about listening to the communities that we're working for. You know, the people who drive change in the community are often the people who have the money and the power and the resources to do it. Okay, so if you're that person, you may not necessarily be the person that you're trying to help. But to make a decision for the people you're trying to help that that's what they need, or even to do the help thing. When we improve our communities, we make a difference in our world, we're not helping somebody. We're creating a world that's better for all of us. So this sort of paternalistic view that we have when we go in to try to fix communities and fix people, we got to get away from that. Activism should be about creating a space that's better for all of us. And if that means taking our power and putting it in the service of the least of us, we do that. It's about equity. It's about creating equity. But we have to recognize when we do it that we have to listen to the people that we're there to help. So activism to me is about listening. It's about engaging with an open mind and listening to the people that you're trying to do something for. Agree. Thank you. Um, and, you know, we've been talking about, like, how what gets measured is what gets done, assigning, you know, real numbers to real problems and how important that is in um, causing change. So what examples do you have of, like, you know, KPIs or metrics that around inclusion that have been successful? Yeah, a lot of people, when you think about inclusion, you know, you can measure diversity. You just count the bodies in the building, okay? But inclusion is a little bit tougher to measure. Um, but I will say this, the measures depend on what it is you're trying to do. Whenever I talk to any company about taking on any kind of diversity measure for whatever, whatever it is you're trying to prove, to try to fix, I always say, the first question is, what are you solving for? What does diversity solve for you? And that's how you start because it, it helps you narrow down then what you're going to measure as determine whether or not. Your, your effort is successful. So when you talk about inclusion, you have to say, what are we solving for? Okay, let's say if the reason that we want a diverse workforce or diverse teams is because we want to be more innovative. So what we're solving for is innovation. So then you have to go and you say, okay, so what does innovation, how do we determine whether something is successful in terms of innovation? Well, we, we create something that we can sell, and make a lot of money for it. Okay, how does it get created? Well, we have teams and innovation hubs that do that. Well, who's on those teams? What, what, which, which teams are delivering? I'll give you an example of um, a conversation I had with a pharmaceutical company. They're a company that makes HIV drugs. And they asked me to come in and talk to their African-American business resource group. And so I came in and we, spent, we, we scheduled a four-hour four workshop. And my first question to them was, what is your value to this company? It was kind of quiet. I said, do you think that you are here? We're in Florida. In Florida, and you're staying at this hotel, and your meals are being paid for because this company likes you? No, absolutely not. I'm not saying they don't like you, but that's not why they're paying for your meals. They're doing it because you as a business resource group have, have made the statement that you are a business resource. So what is the problem? 
that you are uniquely able to solve. You know, they kind of bounced around a little bit. And I told them, I said, look, I don't, I don't understand pharmaceuticals. It's not my core, <laughs> core competency. But in preparing for this, this um, workshop, I did a little research. And I do know that the demographic that is most affected by HIV is heterosexual black women. You're the black business resource group. You need to be the ones who are coming up with the solutions to this problem. And then when you do, when you do, you make sure that you track what you did. Because then when a company comes back a year later and says, what does diversity do for us? How do we measure it? You can go directly to where the problem was. So you start with saying, what is the problem that we're solving for? And that problem will be different for every company. Before I went to, came to NLI, I worked for UPS. The problems that diversity solved for UPS are not the same problems that they're going to solve for NLI. So I got a different set of questions I'm going to ask, but it's the same, well, a different set of metrics I'm going to make. The question is the same. What's it solving for? The gender diversity is the same thing. What, what does having women here do for this company? And take it out all the fuzzy logic. Oh, it makes us think differently. No, 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 no. What is the business problem that it solves? And once you identify that, you back into the things that you measure. Because if you don't, if you don't have inclusion, if you just have the bodies in the building, but inclusion isn't happening, you know, women aren't being allowed to sit in on, on, on the projects that matter. Their voices aren't being heard in the meetings where decisions get made. Then you're not including. And if you can track it to a particular output, a particular outcome, then you can figure out where it's not happening. If you don't have women moving into leadership positions, for example, that's another metric you can look at. When women, who's being promoted? Where are they? Why are they not being promoted? Is it taking somebody, is it taking a woman longer than a man? Is it taking a woman of color longer than a white woman? Who, you can look at all those numbers because that's what inclusion is about. It's about tracking how people are engaged, where they talk, where they show up. And all those metrics are available. You have to decide that you're going to dig in and look for them. That's the issue. Just counting the number of people who show up doesn't tell you anything. It just it might make you feel good, but it doesn't get the problem solved. So tracking to problems is the best way to come up with metrics for inclusion. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left. Um, so I'll ask one more question real quick, and then we'll switch over to the audience to see if they have questions. Um, so this one says, I'm not one of the people in charge at my workplace, but see the need for diversity and inclusion. How do I go about getting the powers that be on board with that? I think this is something a lot of people can relate to. So, Absolutely. Um, you know, I've always been lucky. Well, I won't say I've always been lucky, but for the, for the years that I've really been able to dig in and get into the space of diversity, equity, and inclusion, I've been able to do it um, from position of an advisor. So somebody already said to me, at whatever level, tell me what you think. Um, for 20 years, I ran my own company, and it was a marketing communications consultancy. And so somebody was hiring me because they thought I had an opinion. Then when I started, when I became an executive speechwriter, I started whispering in the ears of CEOs so I could have an opinion and I could put it in there. Not everybody's in that spot, but no matter where you are, if you are the diversity in a space, you're there and you have an opportunity to push for more diversity. 
and when you say that, when we talk about the powers that be, you may not be talking to the CEO, but you probably got a manager. You probably got other, you've other got, you've got peers. You, the powers that be are the powers that are. And if you're a woman, you're talking to men. If you're a mother, you have son, you may have sons, you may you have a husband. You, or you, you are a force no matter where you sit. You lead from wherever you are. And you have to lead in the way that makes sense for you. As I said in my speech, I'll get up on a stage and say something. I will run my mouth day in and day out. Okay, I'll talk. But I also write. And I, um, and I, and I write for other people. And I, and I connect ideas. That's, that's my superpower. Everybody has one. So the trick is, in leading in the space that you're in, is to always be cognizant that you have power, that it's a unique power, that it has a place in whatever space you're in, and that you have a unique opportunity and indeed responsibility to leverage that power and that core capability in service of this effort, no matter where you are. So I don't care where you are on the org chart, I don't care where you are in, in a community organization, if you have your eyes on that goal that I want to improve gender equity, that I want to see this, I want to create a better place for women or people of color or whatever it is you decide, whatever your why is, you're always focused on that. And you live thinking, how can I use what I have, use the position that I'm in, use the talents that I have, use the voice that I've got, use the hands that I've got, to push this forward. That's how you lead from wherever you are. And we should be doing that every day. I agree, thank you, absolutely. We have um, a couple of questions from the audience. So I'm gonna read Carrie's question. So Carrie asks, we talk about leadership, but I worry that the ways we think about leadership plays into problematic hierarchies of power. Are there other ways to talk about how we participate in activism and change that can help us avoid those hierarchies? It's an interesting question, and I hope I, I hope I answer it so I can understand it correctly. Um, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that when we talk about leadership, the people mm -hmm. that we view as leaders generally are the people who fall into the hierarchies that exist. Yes. Okay. Well, the truth is, that's that's fair because until we disrupt things those hierarchies do exist mm -hmm. but but leadership is not just a noun it's a verb so leadership is about being a leader it's not about necessarily the position that you're in so we the hierarchy exists leadership in the sense of the position we don't and generally generally we aren't in that position but that doesn't mean we can't be about that work and we have to be about that work if we're ever going to change that position so we have to think about ourselves as individual leaders in the work we do as leading and we have to approach it that way and you think about if you look at that person who's sitting in that role what they do you need to do the same thing. We need to do the same thing, whether it is communicating effectively, whether it is taking 
responsibility, whether it is willing to willing to assume accountability for what we do, whether it is laying out plans and setting goals and doing all those things. That's what leadership is about. And it doesn't matter who's in the position. We do it from wherever we are. And if enough of us do it, if enough of us do it with enough passion and, 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 and attention to it, that structure itself is what we're seeking to overturn. And so I don't know if I answered your question correctly, but I, I think I understood it that way. So it's a matter of perception. And like I said, looking at leadership as a process and something that you do and not as a position that you necessarily are aiming to achieve. Because you'll get there. We will get there. But we got to do the work. Okay. I lost the screen for a minute. Sorry about that. I agree. Um, it's definitely like a mindset shift as well. I was reading a book. Um, I think it's Leadership Without Authority. I don't remember the author's name. Keith Ferrazzi, I think. But yeah, he talks about that same thing, how like even within a, or a team, a regular team, it's all about having that mindset that you're sort of like a leader in your own sense and like taking up those responsibilities that seem like as though it's like a hierarchical, you know, leadership position and like, you know, acting as a leader, you know, even within the group. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I agree. Um, you went on mute. Go, there you go. Okay. <laughs> Next question. I saw one. Um, Sorry. Gender um, inequity, and this is from Dina, has been touted as a woman versus men issue. I love that Jenna mentioned that as women, we have to check our bias first. I have witnessed on many occasions women impeding gender equity efforts by putting down other women and or enabling leaders to justify a smaller number of women in leadership. How do we market gender equity to women and showcase the role they should play more effectively? Part of it is, is we got to stop thinking about achievement as a zero-sum game. Um, and it, it, it can be if it, it, it is to some extent, but we got we to stop thinking about it that way. And I say that to say that if there's one position and we're all fighting for it and we think that our goal is we got to keep somebody else from getting it because there's only going to be one, and so I need to be that one. Let's say you get you are that one. The solution that you then have is to create more positions, to find ways to open it up, to not get into a spot and hold on to your spot like this, but to get into a spot and say, okay, now how can I blow the doors down for somebody else? How can I get more women here? Because unfortunately, like I said, until we do that, there's only going to be one. There's only going to be one spot. Um, I've listened to a podcast a couple of years ago. And it, it was talking about racial um, equity, but he was saying why people, why people of color will get into a position and not hire other people. And part of that is because we buy into the mindset once we get into that position. So we think, all right, if I get into this position and I hire somebody who's of color, they'll say I'm hiring people of color. So, I mean, so, so as women, same thing. So, or there's only one spot. And if I start... If I start bringing people up behind me, then my spot gets threatened. 
Okay, then if you're in a position to do it, create more spots. Don't stop, don't not bring other women up because you have this one spot. See to it that there are other spots for women. The other reason was because if you're in a role and you hire somebody who looks like you and that person fails or doesn't do well, then it blows back on you. Okay, then well, we got to see to it that we don't fail. We have to, we have to support each other and give each, recognize that when we come into roles, either as people of color or as women, sometimes we don't come with the same preparation because we never had it, because we didn't have mentors, because we weren't part of the old boys club, because mm -hmm. we aren't out playing golf. So we, when we get to a position, the first thing we got to do is look and say, who can I help? Who can I pull up? Mm -hmm. Who can I help get to the point where I am? We should always be working to make ourselves obsolete in the sense that we should always be training the person to come into the role behind us. And if we get into that role, when we start looking around, look for a woman first. Look for a person of color first. Look for a woman of color first. Look there first. Find that person. Train that person. Get them ready to be in that spot. That's how we keep pulling each other through. And then every time we get there, create another spot. Widen the pool. Don't get in the pool and say, I'm here. Don't don't get there and say, I've arrived. Get there and say, I now have an opportunity to do something, to make this bigger for all of us. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Defining Her Story podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review so that we can be found by more amazing people just like you. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or an amazing woman you think we should have on the show, let us know. Text us at 954-NERDGIRL. That's 954-637-3475. You can head over to nerdygirlsuccess.com to see what events we have coming up and how you can get more involved and bring the latest articles, events, episodes, and news right to your phone by downloading our mobile app, which is available on iPhone and Android. Thank you to our sponsors, Red Rex and Wushka, for being supporters of our podcast and organization. Music for this podcast has been provided by bensounds.com.